Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry, with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm joined as always by my co-host Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing buddy? I'm doing so good. This one was an absolute blast. We got to talk with John Torres who you and I have known for a while now. We just had him on our first Spitfire back. So good. Every single time I see him he's absolutely incredible. And he's nice and he's nice on top of of it. <laughs> He's a legitimately good guy. He's got the uh, Brick a Bracket podcast. It is so fun. Uh, he also has Don't Tell Comedy, which is like one of the biggest shows in the country. It's in 42 different cities, and it's it's absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, there are two shows he has coming up on the 23rd and 24th, which sounds good, but of course you can't tell anything about them. You can't tell the location or who they have, but honestly, they sound pretty good guys. <laughs> so check that out. He's also going to be at uh, Zany's on Rosemont on the 20th, which is when this is dropping. So if you are at work listening right now, Drop your plans for tonight. Zany's on Rosemont. You won't regret it. I promise. Go see him, though. John Torres is one of our absolute favorite comics in Chicago. And when, what do we want to talk about today with him? We are going to be talking about aggressive inline skating. Love it. It was so fun. And he knew so much <laughs> about this topic. He went off your, like, he did not need your notes. At all. No, didn't look at it at the screen once. He just knew everything. Incredible. <laughs> it was amazing. Also, this is just a side note for, for me and you. Uh, and this is just because I like to use this time at the beginning of the show to just kind of do a little catch up, say whatever we need to say that's, that's outside. And I realized something while listening to episodes and making sure that our edits are good. I don't introduce myself, Andrew. Uh, do we? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I introduce you every episode and I realize I've, I don't think I've ever said my name at the beginning of one of these i'm just a disembodied voice that kind of brings you in and then like it's just like and it's your show now i had not thought about that because yeah we used to i think did it in the very beginning but that's true you guys probably i mean we our name is probably somewhere in the notes but i'm andrew nadeau by the way when i'm win powers there we go guys if you've been listening to our show for the past year <laughs> now you know our names thanks for sticking around this long no i say your name i don't say my own i only get the first name they don't know the nadeau part that's a that's a big part there are a lot of andrew i say and my co-host andrew nadeau every time i don't say my own name that's my issue you really give me the full name every time no i'm just thinking the andrew how am i doing okay guys so i've been doing great here when is taking care of me every episode and i have thought <laughs> not once thought to say his name when powers joining us for every episode that we have ever done <laughs> thanks for coming on when powers thanks I, this is literally just something i realized while i was saying that intro and i was just like 
like, oh, I've never said my name at the beginning of one of these. And it's it's just mostly a, a fun little quirk. And I hope <laughs> you guys enjoyed me pointing it out and also just went, oh, I didn't know his name. Uh, so there we go. We're going to have a new intro for the next show. Uh, but for this one, we have aggressive inline skating, a fantastic history, so much knowledge from John Torres and a really <laughs> interesting point where it went wrong. So, yeah, let's get into it. Let's go. John Torres, thank you so much for coming on. We just got to do Spitfire again with you. We've, of course, had you on before. We're back live now. You had a fantastic set, as always. It was so good seeing you again. Man, it was so good being back. That show is one of the most fun that you guys have created in the like the local scene of Chicago. And just be able to do it in the big room of the Lincoln Lodge. That was, yeah, very grateful. Thank you. So if you, if you guys are just hearing this, go check out that show. As well as uh, Don't Tell Comedy. I mean, you're you're running that here. I know you you're, have another couple of producers working with you because it is a massive show. Yeah, 42 different yeah. <laughs> and they're starting to get all of them up and running again. Yeah, it's 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 been really nice being able to just get back out and do weird spots. But uh, I think th- I think it'll open up more towards the summer. People are still a little finicky with the idea of I don't want people in my space. And after a global pandemic of death, I can't blame them. Right. We liked how the lodge is, you know, at least doing the the space chairs and a bit because apparently the room can hold like twice as many as they're letting in, which makes me claustrophobic thinking about it because it, it feels busy when you're up on stage. Yeah, I mean, we had a great crowd for that i mean i can't imagine doubling it yeah (laughs) Yeah, dude that crowd was real hot and the the main room the way that it's set up long ways so the room is almost like short but it's a lot of people from side to side it just reminded me of like old school comedy clubs and i'm like oh this is how it's supposed to be this is fucking awesome no it's so great it it definitely a step up from where we were previously just because it feels it feels geared towards stand-up it feels like that's what's supposed to be happening in that space and uh crowd was great but i mean man your set fucking killed how much help did the crowd really do there i think you just yeah. have a fucking killer <laughs> set man thanks guys i i don't know i got to make fun of those like three dudes that were dressed like golfers in like the middle of a, a tuesday night for some reason that was a lot of fun those were my co-workers yeah when's friends <laughs> yeah, that's all right. they were real good sports about it like i was like i i remember sitting on the side of the stage watching the show i'm like please nobody else make fun of them please nobody else make fun of them and then i was when i watched every comic I was like, all right, I might be able to crowd work these two dudes. And then I just had to make fun of them a little bit. I, I'm always hesitant, like making fun of people in the crowd, because it's like, if you sit up front at a stand-up show, there's two people, there's people that are like, I want to like have fun. And like, maybe the comic will talk to me. And then there's other people that go and they're like, I'm going to fight a comedian at night. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I, I got the rundown later. They came in like right before showtime. There was like the only seats left where they could all sit together. And one of them just went, one of the guys that you made fun of was said, I don't want to sit in the front. They're going to make fun of my outfit. <laughs> and they were all like, you're so vain. That's not going to happen. Why do you think that everyone's going to focus on you at this comedy show? <laughs> Dude, when when I did that, the amount of people that looked over, I was like, oh, are you guys all sitting together? Fuck, they must have been waiting for this. No, no. It was a- fantastic <laughs> okay the weirdest thing because this happens at every one of our shows and i've never seen anywhere else we ask who is here for the first time and 
every single fucking show that people that are there for the first time raise their hands. Dude, people do that all the time, especially at Dante. Do you get that more often? Most of the time at other shows, I'll get the applause for first time. And it's like, I, you're new here. So it's not like the people from last time told you. But still, every time it's like, no, I'm just going <laughs> to. It was the first time dealing with any sort of crowd. Now you raise your hand. To I love things. when people raise their hands because then you can like go crowd work them and shit. Yeah. Like if they raise their hand and be like, well, you wanted attention. Let me talk to you. For right. Like, <laughs> right. What made you make this weird decision to raise your hand instead of right. make some noise? <laughs> Especially when the host said, make some noise. And then they all fucking raise right. their hand. <laughs> incredible uh, so it's, it's a lot of fun we're so glad we're getting back out there and yeah guys again we're going to be there uh, and we moved to thursdays we're going to last thursday of every month at lincoln lodge so please come by tickets are only ten dollars and john you had a really fun topic for today what did you want to talk about i wanted to do the death of aggressive inline skating it's absolutely this was a really fun one to look into obviously it started with aggressive inline skating a very cool thing what, what's your background there? I skated for years. I loved it. I love skate any extreme sports, man. Like, I don't know how old you guys are. I'm 32. And with being a product of like that, those years of childhood, everything was about extreme sports. Like you grew up in the nineties and early two thousands, everything was geared towards it. Like, and it, it was so great that it was finally becoming cool. Like the anti-sport became a legitimate sport and now it's becoming even more legitimized. I mean, for hell, like the, what's it called? The skateboarding, skateboarding going to be in the olympics this year and that's that's huge but yeah i mean we'll talk I'll, I'll have that whole thing circle back around about why rollerblading is dead now and it sucks but it had a lot to do with wanting a inside for at least this is from what i've heard from like people in the industry and stuff like that is that people wanted it to be a self-sustaining society and sport they all wanted their own brands to stay in-house and stuff like that but you can't compete with adidas and nike and all the and all that stuff you can't say no to that yeah oh absolutely Absolutely. And Nike actually bought a company at the peak of inline skating, thinking they were going to compete with Rollerblade. And then when Rollerblading went down, sold it for a loss of about $180 million. Yeah, they lost a lot of money. And it's funny, too, because that was actually right around the time that Nike started making hockey equipment. And I, I played hockey growing up. And I still remember, I, oh, fuck, I can't remember the name of the pro hockey player that got his own Nike, like, air pump skate. But they're the ugliest, really? yeah, they're the ugliest <laughs> hockey skates I've ever seen. They're, like, all white. And, a, like, a buddy of mine still has a pair. And they're just yellow now because they're so old. They're just gross. <laughs> That's absolutely insane. I mean, not like the, the pump was a great idea to be Begin with, uh, but putting it on, on skates does not seem like a fantastic plan. It was a uh, Sergey Fedorov. Yeah, Sergey Fedorov. Yeah. Yes, that's who it was. And the the Fedor It's really funny too because those are like sought after skates now by collectors because Nike Nike got in and got out on sports real fast, just like how Reebok did for a little while because they bought got bought by CCM and then Adidas is actually making NHL jerseys right now, which is weird. I've never seen Adidas hockey equipment in my whole life, but it's kind of cool to see. Yeah, I mean that absolutely is and so your background you had hockey and skateboarding before inline skating right no hockey and rollerblading went hand in hand really okay you started those at the same time yeah basically i mean i started playing roller hockey before i played ice hockey because it, it was so much cheaper you know i got a single mom and it's like oh 200 bucks a season versus five thousand dollars a season yeah you're playing roller hockey and i hope you're really good at it and uh it just kind of snowballed into this 
thing. I, I remember seeing a, a skate video at a, at a friend's house. It was his older brother who I found out later rollerbladed. And it was a movie called Brain Fear Gone. And it was this, uh, this company called Mind Game. Mind Game changed uh, rollerblading forever when they came out with their video after that, which was called Words. And it was, it, it's still known as the, like the greatest rollerblading video of all time. And it was from like 2000, 2001. The, the impact that the individual videos had on the sport too were incredible because it was very much when they came out and started blowing up it was a lot of we didn't know you could do this or this is what we've been doing and we didn't know others were doing it so the level of success in rollerblading just from the independent videos that were being released was pretty incredible i think it was bigger than what that sport was ready for because of how fast the popularity of rollerblading boomed in the 90s is that it just became an overnight sensation everybody had rollerblades like they recommended that commuters had rollerblades to get to work could you imagine like the crowded l station and just seeing <laughs> some asshole on rollerblades and he's wearing a suit i'm like this guy's gonna fall down the stairs but they did it that sounds like the ideal thing in the 90s of a guy in a suit that's too big for him skating down the street like, yeah. that's a peak <laughs> 90s aesthetic in his in his fucking jenko suit like <laughs> just, looks, just looks real good never sees you can never see his dress shoes but yeah it's, i mean it was marketed huge in california which is like you know nice weather capital of the world skating capital of the world and then it just became a thing i want to say it was fen bokerst that was one of the first people to do a grind on rollerblades there's a guy from sweden and in europe rollerblading is still really big and that's kind of where it all came from it's, right it's not a dying sport in europe like it's still not as big as it was but i mean a lot of people that's i think that's where the main hub of rollerblading is in europe like poland uh switzerland places like that well you know you know the reason for that though right no. they never stopped releasing brink movies in <laughs> europe <laughs> And which was incredible, by the way, that, that it was so big at this time that Disney did this quick turnaround to put Brink out, which is, you know, just this entire movie about inline skating. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Disney did it a few times, because not only that, but they also had the sequel to a Goofy movie, Be About the X Games. Be About the X Games, yes. <laughs> ah, man, Brink brings up so many good memories because as somebody that rollerbladed, they got it all right. Like, the clothes that they wore, like, they wore, like, legit, like, skate brand t-shirts when I was impressed. I was like, way to go, Disney. Like, the, the backpacks that they had that carried rollerblades, they were Senate bags. Senate is, like, was one of the original companies in the 90s. They were huge. And just to see all this stuff, I'm like, oh, everybody's, like, rocking 
talking like Solomon skates or rollerblades. It was very cool. I would have liked to see a couple different things. I liked that they made up their own fake skate company to be the bad guys, which was really funny to me. Right. <laughs> and also, we all we all know how important the uh, belief in soul skating was at the time <laughs> in the '90s. It really was. Like, my God, if you if you, if you want to talk to me about carving shit into desks in grade school, like, God damn. <laughs> Here's the thing: Brink has so permeated my brain. I know for a fact that the lyrics go don't skate for money glory or fame soul skaters riding the perfect way come on brink <laughs> when is in no way looking at the screen there that was direct camera eye contact he knew that no, by no, heart I, I legitimately did i don't know how i don't remember a lot of math i learned as a child but i know that <laughs> section of the song brink from the movie brink i mean yeah. man, i can relate there's a whole section of my brain where algebra was supposed to be they're like nah remember this vague thing from the simpsons from 1996 yeah. I find that to be important. <laughs> I don't remember the quadratic formula at all, but God damn it, do I know the Simpsons address. Look, it has led to both of our podcasts. It's apparently worked out really well for us. <laughs> I, I will say this one, one last thing about Brink. One thing that they got absolutely correct, and I love it to this day, is that they're all sitting on the steps and they're all talking, and one kid is grinding the steps with his soap shoes. <laughs> oh, God, my 90s, like my little 90s heart. I'm like, God, soap shoes. God damn. What a stupid invention. <laughs> God. Between Brink and Alley Cat Strike, I got myself into some weird hobbies there in the late 90s. I can't remember the dad from Brink, but he was like the perfect dad. I forget yeah. his name. He's like a bigger actor. I can't fucking remember his name. It's uh, it's David Graff. David Graff is yeah, the Yeah, that's who it is. Where David Graff was the one who started. Guys, we absolutely didn't have to edit out a giant section here while we looked this up. So <laughs> for me, I wasn't especially athletic. Wasn't, isn't. I'm, I'm not currently athletic either. But, you know, I had a skateboard and a achieved very little on that. Uh, I had rollerblades and the first time I put them on, I tried to do a jump. Oh my God. And which, I mean, just to like, there's a ledge. Let me just jump off and see what happens. And you know, you land. It's it's not like it was anything impressive. I wasn't going to ramps or anything, but this is something I heard about it too, is the ease of access with a skateboard. The first, you know, law forever, the forever number of times that I tried an ollie, I never achieved an ollie. <laughs> skateboarding. If like, man, I just started skateboarding again, like a year or so ago because of the pandemic. I'm like, I need something to do and i i went around like tried to skate again and i just can't ollie anymore it's like oh yeah because you can't jump you sit all day stupid like, yeah, right man, you, have, you have no ass muscle anymore to, to get to the sport in the air your lower body has atrophied yeah <laughs> it really has like people call that like a stable job i call it slow death yeah <laughs> Well, and, and the level of increase in, in these type of sports at, because of the pandemic, in the first five months, the increase in sales of inline skates went up 300%. 300%. Skate companies can't handle it right now. I went to go buy a pair. Of, I'm like, oh man, I haven't, I haven't bought a brand new pair of skates in years. And I, I have a used pair. I still got a pair of razors like on my bookshelf right now that I'll go skate every once in a while, but they're too small. I'm like, oh, I'll just buy a pair of skates. They're like, oh, sold out till October. And this was months ago. Jeez. Yeah. Because the, they don't have like the molds anymore, the material, all that stuff. So skates are getting more expensive now. I think that had a lot to do with the death of it too, is that you, you go buy a skateboard and you could figure out how to do You could buy a good skateboard for a hundred bucks. Aggressive inline skates, your your intro pair was like $200. Right. And for our audience to a distinction here, because we're using inline skates and rollerblades was actually the brand uh, that was so successful and dominated that it became interchangeable with inline skates. But that's actually the sport. Yeah, it's like how a pain relief 
flavor is an aspirin. Exactly. There was actually a huge lawsuit over terminology. And I think it was either the 80s or the 90s when rollerblades started to be mass produced by other companies is that they, they had to call them inline skates because they couldn't call them rollerblades. Right. It happens every time a brand like picks up enough thing that they become the cultural shorthand for an item. There's always lawsuits that just never stop. Like Kleenex has been trying to get everyone else to just be facial tissues and it's having no success. And it just completely dilutes the brand because you're like, you're just like, yeah, I guess I could just do the generic, which is obviously Kleenex. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so since we've got the terminology here, let's go a little bit into the history. Guys, if, if you listen to our ice skating episode and Tanya Harding episode with Ashley Ray, you've already had the history of the invention of ice skates and what that led to. So I'm going to start just with roller skates in their earliest form. And the earliest skates appeared in 18th century Europe, and they were used in theater and musical performances. In oftentimes, it's suspected more when they had to mimic ice skating, but also, obviously, if you're a dancer, it allows you to glide. So the exact origin and creator is unknown, but the earliest recorded name associated with skates is John Joseph Merlin. Merlin was a Belgian man who debuted his creation at a London party in the 1760s, skating into the room while playing the violin. And he was known as an inventor and for his showmanship and his for his, you know, loud clothing. But skates had no brakes and no way to turn. So Merlin crashed into a very expensive mirror, shattering it, breaking his violin and severely injuring himself. You know, he was so fucking pumped to do this right before he did it. Yeah. (laughs) Hearing that story made me realize why Roland rollerblading was cursed yeah <laughs> this was how it started not an auspicious beginning by any means can you imagine like so skates aren't a thing and then just some guy decides <laughs> to just like go in like that sounds like a fucking like side like one-off character that like in a rick and morty moment there's like a throwaway thing like that's like the most ridiculous over-the-top bullshit that it's just like oh yeah you know the violin guy in skates that comes by crashes into a thing it's like his running bit yeah. imagine how weird that as you said when it's never been done before it's like showing up in a big hamster ball like this isn't a thing. This is, is just what this something this guy has that he thinks is entertaining. It's just like, do I always have to play the violin when I use this product? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredibly bold attempt that backfired so hard. And so quickly. That's so the thing. Quickly. It literally was exactly the second he got his ego big was also the exact moment he ruined the entire night forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, too. Like nobody's having a great time at the party after that for like the next hour. They've got to deal with this hurt guy and cleaning up broken glass. He's bleeding. Right. (laughs) At the next party, everyone's having a great time talking about it, and he's obviously not invited to this one. But for that party, it's just completely ruined. Dude's gonna come in on a pogo stick playing the saxophone and just like, stop doing this. I would pay money to see a pogo saxophone. (laughs) I would be there every goddamn. Like, I'm your front row again. I'm like, you bet you, buddy. Here's your five bucks. That that is very interesting that it came from theater and musical performances because, uh, man, it was probably like 12 years ago. I was in Vegas seeing Cirque du Soleil when they did the uh, the, the the Beatles uh, show. I love that show. They yeah, had the English Bobbies, the the fucking vert ramp came out of the ground and they they skated back and forth. And I found out that they were like local skaters and like one of them was a pro. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean they're really perfect for dance and performance, assuming you can do it well because it's elegant if you can do it well. Not if you invented it. If you invented it, you're you're fucking awful at this. Not if you invented it. <laughs> and at this time too, it's just two wheels, one in the front and the back. They are in line in the beginning. It, the French inventor Pettibled patented a three-wheeled inline skate in 1819, but it had the same issue, so it was mostly used for the rare performance that required it. And variations continued along the same pattern for decades 
which made sense as they were all trying to recreate ice skating. That was the exposure they had to thing on your foot that you glide with. So it wasn't until 1863 that James Plimpton developed the quad skate that it took up as an activity. I'm sorry, wait, it took them 50 fucking years to be like, what if we added one more wheel to this? Basically, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing that this was so revolutionary, but it absolutely was. It was like, no, the, the wheels go in a straight line and they're like, cool, but nobody can balance. You're like, doesn't matter. Straight line. So there were other attempts to do quad skating, as we found out, because Plimpton had to defend himself in over 300 patent violation lawsuits. Uh, so obviously others had gotten there in some form, but his blew up because he also created the New York Skating Association and opened the first U.S. rink at the Rhode Island Resort in 1866 and gave lessons uh, in the 1870s. But some rinks in London in the late 1850s, <laughs> when skates were known as parlor velocipedes, uh, had already existed. And they'd perhaps gained some success in England because before quad skates were invented, German barmaids used them to serve customers in the mid-1800s, which at this point, they've basically developed turning, sort of, and that's about it. And they're delivering giant beers on these skates. It's so weird that that started, you know, back in the 1850s, considering I associate somebody coming up to your car. And, with the car hops, right? right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, car hop. I, I associate it with like 1950s, like old fast food, where like literally they'll like come up and skate to you. I think they still do that at Sonic. So if you want to throw back, there you go. So that helped bring it to England and it gave this popularity as an activity for the public because it was deemed an activity for proper ladies and gentlemen, but one where they could interact together unchaperoned. So in England, it continued to develop along these lines and the rinks would often have a live orchestra, the then uncommon electric lights, allowing them to compete with ballrooms as a place for high society to kind of see and be seen as well as display latest fashions. So in October 1876, a rink opened at the scores St. Andrews and Fife and it had 2,000 square meters of asphalt, which was said to be the consistency of ice, <laughs> which funny. is great. Okay. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> spectators had this terrace and cafe to watch. Ladies, that even as members, were not permitted alone unless they were accompanied by a cavalier, uh, with what the rink is dead. And one day a week was set aside for high life, where you basically paid extra to be seen there and prove that you could pay extra to be oh, there. A real high society type thing. The yeah. way high society still exists now. Yeah. yeah. Like, God, what, what, a, what a different world. Like, everyone else is just waiting for, like, a discount day where there's no cover. But if you live in a world where you have enough money, you're waiting for pay extra day just to prove you can do it. Also, man, I can't imagine, I can't imagine how horrible these things were to ride because, like, the wheels were probably metal. I would have to imagine so. It's a metal on asphalt. I can't imagine how, like, grippy or glidey that really is. Oh, and this is before they even developed the ball bearings for it, too. So at this point, they're just working with an axle on, <laughs> on inline skates. I mean, shit, man, they're like 80 years away from like polyurethane wheels and skateboards were the first ones that do that. Exactly. Yeah. No, it, it had to be terrible. Though, as we discussed in the ice skating episode, when they wanted to make that more available to the public in non-winter years, they just froze fat uh, <laughs> and tried to get it firm enough. They couldn't freeze it. It was below temperature to try and make it firm enough for people to skate on. Of course, the issue there was it smelled terrible and nobody wanted to go on it. So yeah, they, they couldn't really get a good surface because as you said, the, the wheels were metal. They're just going to tear this up. Uh, so wood rinks were, were a thing in America as well and being developed, but it was largely controlled by Plimpton as it developed. He chose not to sell the skates, but instead rented them, letting him maintain the quality of his clientele, which basically was the same thing. They're trying to keep this an upper class sport or activity. They don't even want it to be a sport. So as more rinks developed, Plimpton would tour them around the country, giving lessons for two hours a week, including skate rental 
wheels. And this form continued to dominate for about a century. By the early 20th century, roller skates became mass-produced. Skating rinks developed all over the world. It also developed as a sport with both figure and speed skating. And it dipped in popularity, but had this resurgence from the 1930s to 50s in what's called the golden age of roller skating. And it was the number one participatory sport in America at this time. Again, these are still the quad skates that have, have dominated right now. The civilians, war industry workers, and military personnel in the States and overseas were looking for rinks to relieve the stress of World War II. That was actually where roller derby came from. Wait, really? Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, it developed at this time as, as well. Well, please tell us a bit about that. Oh, my uh, my, my grandma was a, like an like an OG. Like she was the old, old school roller derby queen. Really? Yeah. That's incredible, which I mean, you got to be tough to roller derby too. Yeah, my grandma, tough old Polish lady yeah. from the old school <laughs> and she, she had some wheels on her, man. And she that's why she got really excited that I got into skating and stuff because she was like, oh, I used to be on the roller derby doing all this stuff and she showed me, pic- I got to find the old pictures because she just looks like such a badass. That's fantastic. That sounds so fucking cool. I love that so goddamn It much. really is because roller derby is obviously the sport where you're like all the other skating sports, you're trying to stay up. Obviously you are in roller derby too, but everyone else is trying to knock you down. <laughs> so the injuries you get from like skateboarding are just inherent in roller derby because you've got a person throwing elbows. I think a lot of it came from Oh, I can't remember if it was World. I think it was World War II because I think that was when women were playing more sports for entertainment, right? Yeah, you had the, the increase in sports is obviously women at this point had also taken over a lot of the factory jobs back home. I mean, a league of their own is all about the the women's baseball league that that started up at the time. Exactly. So there was this, this huge uh, increase among women's sports among men overseas. There were attempts to make things feel more like home. That's why they started sending donuts to be made overseas too. It was just little things to make. Americans feel more like home, whether this was, of course, after they were kind of introduced to it there and brought them back from World War II, and then men were demanding it all over the world. I'm very glad you pointed out the roller derby thing, John, because I was looking at the notes, and just like the phrase, uh, we're looking for rinks to relieve the stress of World War II, just really made me laugh. Just the idea of just like that damn Hitler, like strapping <laughs> up your rollerblades and just like aggressively just going side to side, just like, oh, fuck the Nazis, yeah. just trying to skate it all out. <laughs> But if you're throwing people to the ground, that makes a lot more sense. No, that's true because then they would put on shows like patriotism shows. Like they would have like rehearsed types of roller derby type of things because the roller derby and pro wrestling are actually fucking cousins. There would be a wrestling ring in the middle of the rink and they would jam around it for the roller derby show and then there would be wrestling on top of that. That is incredible. Cool as hell. And I I wish we had that in our wrestling episode, Andrew. Right. (laughs) Oh my, I had like seven pages of research on that. There's like a million (laughs) years worth of pro wrestling stuff. Oh yeah. It's incredible. We covered roughly like a hundred thousand of those years, but that was bad. (laughs) So I I had no idea though. That's really cool and something I wish we were doing now because I would go to that show. It's amazing. Me too. The entertainment you could get for a nickel back then was unfucking real. (laughs) Three shows and a bag of popcorn. Well, it really was. And there was this huge boom in popularity. Rinks were built all over. An estimated 5,000 rinks were in operation with 18 million Americans skating. Uh, It was especially popular in the Midwest with Chicago, uh, where we all are being the epicenter. So, I mean, it, it was incredible. It was incredible how popular it was. And so this time you also have organizations forming that helped, you know, make it more popular and competing organizations as well. So it was really growing very quickly and still kind of in this form. But there was dancing on skates advanced. And then in the 70s, roller disco gaining popularity. And then in 1979, two brothers saw an inline skate design from the 60s with four wheels where the front and back wheels.
wheel extended beyond the boot, which is obviously much more similar to the ice skate design. And they began working on a similar one for off-ice hockey training, attaching that wheel alignment to hockey boots, and their design would obviously become rollerblades. So rollerblades saw significant success largely due to the marketing strategy of the brothers. They offered them essentially as an accessory with a five-day money-back guarantee, allowing people to try them out, and they would immediately get hooked. They also would have performances in California by people that had gotten good at this, and well, originally were just begging stores to carry them. <laughs> then they started having really? performance. Oh yeah, they 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 were going up and, and just person to person asking them to just put the skates in the window, see what happens. And just making sure, because I know with ice skating there was a while where it was just like an addition to your shoe, pretty much. So you kind of was this what the original rollerblades were, or were they all the were they the shoe and the actual wheels and everything all as one, or was it a separate attachment? Because you said it was an accessory, so I just want to make sure. Right. Um, the rollerblades were the full boot from the beginning. These were their own individual piece, but ones that they were trying to sell is like, no, you can just put them on. It's casual. Uh, it's just a thing. Now you can glide. And then they started having kind of these exhibition type shows with good skaters who would then sell to the crowds. And this immediately gained popularity along the boardwalks and beaches in California. And they had the very clever idea to market it to women and children, which had not really been done with skating before. They put on these neon colors. They started making this uh, an attraction of sorts, and they really wanted it to be something that would get everyone engaged. And obviously you then had uh, women skating along the beaches. You had kids playing hockey on the streets. It was massive how well this blew up. Again, so much so that inline skating became synonymous with rollerblades. Huh. So <laughs> Sorry. every now and then, Andrew, I just get kind of wrapped up in what you're saying that I don't even think to start making jokes about any of yeah. it. It's just like <laughs> interesting history that I'm enjoying learning about. Yeah, absolutely. And they were even sponsoring skating runs between towns. I mean, they, they this was really a successful marketing campaign that launched it to become what it would be then taken by the very active skaters who figured out they could do more with this. And this was also when the jogging boom was still going, which you might have heard in our episode with, with Eden Dranger. But late 80s, it had been long enough people had got accustomed to it. And sports like jazzercise and alternative home and class exercises were building significantly. So rollerblading offered an outdoor fun alternative to jogging, and it bridged the gap between sport activity and exercise. So it hit all the markets it could. Now, John, you have more experience with this than I do. Do you consider roller skating to be a good like substitute for jogging or running like exercise wise like it sounds like you're doing way less work if you're going on a on a skate just because gliding is a big part of it. the reason it feels less is because it has less impact on your bones like running is fucking horrible for you it's horrible for your knees your shins your back rollerblading kind of let people that have any nagging injury or even roller skating it let people that have nagging injuries definitely target their legs but it, i, I want to say it's more like thigh and glute base than running is. I think you're getting more of like a calf push when you're running. But I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not a personal trainer or anything. No, no, no. That, I mean, that does make absolute sense because you're kind of more like pushing outwards than you are like moving forward and putting any kind of stress, especially because with a boot, you're not really putting any kind of calf strain. It's going to be all coming from thighs and your glutes. So that makes sense. I was curious. Just the level of balance required with that too uh, adds an extra use of the muscles as you're maintaining a lot more control. So no, I mean, these were the same way that, you know, you can pedal on bikes as well as just kind of drift for a while. But obviously bikes can be a significant workout too. It's, it's all how they're used. But in 1988, Rollerblade Incorporated had released the first aggressive inline skate, one designed for tricks and skate parks. And it gained massive popularity very quickly. By 1994, the first competition series was launched by Rick Stark and Mark Billick. Taco Bell sponsored the series for $150,000. And Billick and Stark got the series shown on ESPN to a huge response, so much so that when the first 
X Games was launched in 1995, there were more aggressive inline skating competitions than any other sport, which was incredible that at this point, this X Games, which you now think of as basically being dominated by skateboarding, was overshadowed here by rollerblading. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, time will happen because there's somebody that never gave up on skateboarding by the name of Tony Hawk that changed everything. And I want to say like 97 or 99 or some shit like that. Then skateboarding just hook off, man. Oh, absolutely. No, the, the level of impact he had was incredible. <laughs> I mean, and especially then when you have Tony Hawk Pro Skater and the video games coming out, and this was something that every teenager wanted to yeah, do. I'm just blown away by the fact that they invented the first aggressive inline skate for tricks in 1988. And essentially six years later, it's gotten popular enough for them to have Taco Bell throw money at it and for them to have an entire you know series of games with inline skating being like the main event. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like that's six, seven years of just like a novelty thing to an established sport that the entire world is watching. I mean, that growth is insane. Yeah. Yeah. Like, remember how big the Da Vinci Code was when it came out and like six years later, <laughs> there was a movie that was terrible. Imagine if instead there was a massive thing where everyone was trying to hunt down Jesus across the country. Like the, there was. It, that was the Bible, Andrew. Come that was it. I mean, it happened. But <laughs> so, no, I mean, the level of participation required it, it's because it, it wasn't just a like, oh, we're watching and part of this. Everyone was getting into this, was involved. They wanted to watch it. They wanted to be a part of it if they could. It was insane. Not only that, man, you got to think like if you're at something for only six years, I mean, how good can you be at it? That right. means that these people found this new thing, put all their time and effort into it, got very good at it. Also, you got to think some of these people were the people that were probably inventing tricks, shit that's never been done before. Right. That's also a very tricky thing because how do you judge that contest? You know, it's only six years. Like you're going to see somebody do some stuff no one's ever done before. Guaranteed. And I'll say not only that, but like, so they, they're inventing it. They come up with the first trick. And as we all know, the first trick was they came into a room playing a violin and smashed into a mirror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sticking with the roots. Uh, but yeah, like who, who can judge other than, oh, I made, I actually invented this trick and therefore I'm the one who has to join or I have to, you know, judge the X Games. And it sounds like that's basically kind of what they did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty incredible. How to, I mean, this is in like Simone Biles, her names keep coming up because she keeps doing this. She keeps inventing new tricks that nobody else could do. And they keep having to say, I mean, I guess we got to figure out how to score this as well as occasionally she they like won't counter the competition because they just go, it's too hard. Nobody should be able to yeah. do this. We can't give you points for Which it. Which No, you should get all the points for that. If no one else can do it, you win. Yeah, exactly. That's always been one of the most like crazy bullshit things I've ever heard that they're just like, yeah, human beings were never meant to do this. It's like human <laughs> beings were never meant to do most gymnastics. Figure out a way to score right. this. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think that pretty much leads us into where it went wrong because at this point it's at its peak. So John, where did it go wrong? Oh man, where to start? Let's see. Uh, it probably had to, I think it started going wrong when the popularity hit its highest. And the best way to compare rollerblading is if you're a millennial like me or us and you're, you're in your thirties, you probably saw the boom of razor scooters. Well, that was the exact same boom that rollerblading <laughs> had and you either loved it or you hated it. And skateboarders hated us. They thought we were biting on their style because we're riding the ramps. We're grinding the rails. We're literally invading their space that they helped create. Like if you see a skate park that exists, it's because of skateboarding and it's because of bowl skating and surfing from the late sixties, early seventies, because they wanted to figure out how to surf when you're out of the ocean and they learned how to make ramps and do all this other stuff like that. Uh, rollerblading started dying when they just decided to make it. I feel like too enclosed of a community where they, they got 
sick of the sponsorships. They're like, how is this actually helping the community? And it's like, well, it's not really a community if you're a pro. Like, yeah, if you hit a home run, your team's going to win. But also if you hit a home run, you're getting a bonus. Yeah, right. That's the way that you just have to look at it. It's always been, you know, aggressive or not even aggressive inline, just extreme sports in general. It was one of those things that was the anti-sports. So we didn't know how, like, is selling out right? Should I be getting money to be doing this? Should I have my face on a fucking Taco Bell right now? Yeah, right. it's the classic X-Blades <laughs> versus Soul Skater yes. dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. Do I get sponsored and sell out or do I keep doing this because I love it? And when you start getting older and you realize that your knees aren't going to last you past 24, uh, you should have taken the money. Yeah, no, th- like if they remade Brink as they should, uh, it should definitely be like, no, sell out while you can. This is a limited amount of time that you're able to capitalize on this skill. Puppin Suds is not going to be around forever. You can't do that job as your job. Yeah, I remember Puppin Suds was the name of the, <laughs> the dog cleaner he worked <laughs> yeah. at. Well, and that was amazing too, because the, the best skateboarders, they were getting sponsorships, they were getting deals, and they were finding a way to make a living off of this. And of course, a lot of people that were inline skaters came from a skateboarding background. You know, they they started there and then either found they preferred this or, you know, a lot of it was obviously the ease of access to it. And that again, you could try a jump your first time and it might not look good, but you could do it. And one of the things that was very interesting when I started researching this was I stopped looking at the sites where I was finding the articles and just reading the articles because you could tell in the first paragraph whether or not it was written by a skateboarder uh, or by an inline skater. The level of bias about the background here, skateboarders were were talking about how they developed their culture and it was then being taken from them and how kids were doing it and they weren't respecting the rules of the skate park. And inline skaters were talking about how skateboarders destroyed the reputation by saying these things because they didn't like how much of the business was being taken away from them. And just incredible bias in every article I read about it. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I, I think Big Brother had a lot to do with it. I mean, if, if you guys don't know what Big Brother is, Big Brother was the skateboard magazine, which eventually turned into Jackass. Right. And uh, they did a issue where pro skater Arlo Eisenberg, who I personally think helped ruin rollerblading forever, was the focal point of it. And then they like hunted him like a wild animal. And he was a good sport about it because he respected skateboarding. But I don't think he wanted rollerblading to go in the same direction. He just wanted it to all be really grassroots and stuff like that. In 2005, when the when they got kicked out of the X Games, there was tons of like independent stuff, especially overseas, like LG would sponsor stuff. There was tons of other stuff for aggressive inline skating, but it wasn't the X Games because the X Games had ESPN money. And if you're not on ESPN, a lot of kids aren't going to see this and they aren't going to start. I think a lot of people forget the whole like sellout thing is so that one day a kid can see it and get easy access to it and then discover all the cultural underground world about it. I mean, it's the same thing as pro wrestling. People are like, ah, there's no more territories anymore. It's like, well, when it's on TV, you're going to inspire a hundred people versus one person. And I think that's something we deal with a bit in our business too. All of us are looking to get into TV writing. (laughs) You know, that's the goal. And you're writing for a show where you have to be shaping your writing style to this show. It's not purely your creation. And you hear a lot of comedians who aren't very good talking about, no, I'm going to be pure. I'm going to do just my thing. And it's, well, if you're good enough, you can make your thing someone else's. You can, you know, you can show this style out there. You can adapt. Exactly. Uh, And help, you know, get bigger and bigger and and create your style and get it shown. So suddenly you have your own thing you're making here. And that article with, with Arlo, he was a surprisingly good sport. The entire thing was basically just calling him gay as a slur. Incredibly offensive. Yeah. Amazing 90s humor going above and beyond itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were multiple questions that were just that. They asked him about rainbows and he sat through the whole thing and he says, you know, I don't really care what people think about me. Uh, I could not believe 
believe he's after the whole interview. And Big Brother really used this as a slander piece. And it was incredible. They were, they're all, at this point, too, there are videos coming out that are satire, but almost propaganda to the level that they're mocking the skill and the tricks of rollerbladers. And they, in fact, do a good job of pushing it to this level of weak to be a rollerblader instead of a skateboarder. The level of sway that they had from Big Brother and similar articles was incredible. They did a lot of damage. Well, yeah. I mean, between Big Brother and Thrasher, trashing it. The two, yeah. The two, the two <laughs> biggest outlets that skateboarders had, which, I mean, nothing wrong with it. All in good fun, make fun of something that you feel like is biting on your secret culture that you're a part of. But also, like, man, you got to remember, like, maybe a kid will buy a pair of rollerblades one day and he's at the skate park and he sees skateboarding for the first time and he's like, oh, I, I'm going to try that. And then he buys a skateboarding. Nobody says that you can't do both. Also, you got to think extreme sports, it's all about creativity. And last time I checked, we're all comedians. Creativity is not a one-way street. No. Absolutely not. And no, that this is something where there was a chance to influence it. As, as you said, I think that's a, a great point. If you're going there and, and seeing this, if you're good on skates, eventually you're going to want to try the board. The same way that boarders became skaters, this could go in both directions. Yeah, and the, the funny thing is skateboarders never talked any shit to the, the dudes that were rode BMX. And from my memory, I wasn't even alive yet, but even just watching and knowing the like, history of the 80s, I'm pretty sure BMX was way more popular than skateboarding was. And because of BMX, skate parks got built, which means skateboarders had a place to go. Absolutely. And and I think this was part of it too, was that, you know, these magazines had sponsors that made their money from BMX and, and from skateboard sales and from the clothing brands that, that are associated with them. And the level of growth here was a competition uh, with them. Instead of, instead of slightly pivoting and being like, our shirts could be for inline skaters too, they went against them. And suddenly you had new brands popping up just for bladers because they needed this competition instead of bringing it together. And I think it was a misstep. Absolutely. There was so many skating brands because of that. It's like when you meet stand-ups who are so fucking precious about it and hate improvisers. Right. Like, <laughs> it, it gives me that kind of thing. We're just like, we're doing similar yeah. shit here. It's Don't act all <laughs> high and mighty because like someone's doing it in a different way. Yes. Right. <laughs> but the numbers on this were pretty incredible too because BMX is starting to go down at this time. They don't have the same sponsorship levels they do, which also brought more people into inline skating because they, there was a chance to make money here. But by 1997, there were 29.1 million inline skaters in America with around 5 million skateboarders. So some stats show closer to 10 million. But this was just this massive boom. I mean, this was huge in an era where skateboarding was absolutely taking off. Inline skating was more than competing was, you know, three times as level at least. Yeah. And I think it, I think it wasn't looked some looked at so much as the the secret society like skateboarders i feel like skateboarders are so much fucking cooler now yeah <laughs> because before they're like no this is our thing this is and it's like are you picking on me because like the fucking jocks pick on you at school or some shit yeah <laughs> do you or you just have this redirected anger because you weren't allowed to be a part of the thing it's like just let people coexist in this space we're all just trying to have fun and i think that's what people forget about is that you have to start somewhere with fun and you might not be good at it at first there was this scene in one of the documentaries I found on this where they're talking about the shift in perspective and you could see he's getting visibly angry and cuts himself off where he said no skateboarders used to be the outcasts and now they still want to be that but they're cool now they're popular in school and they've made inline skaters the outcasts it was like you were just here <laughs> why why are you pushing us in here you get to be cool in school now and we we could be along for the ride it's a real uh I forget the name of the the term whatever the, the snake eating its own tail type of thing the uh, Ouroboros 
yeah, yeah. or Boris. It yeah. absolutely was. And yeah, both of you are smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's massive in the X Games. It's blowing up around the country. Sales are huge. And then 2004, it's dropped to one activity, <laughs> one competition. And yeah, and they've even con- combined the men's and women's competition into one at this point. And 2005, with 19.8 million online skaters, it's removed. <laughs> It, that, that's incredible. There, there's still such a massive audience for this. Or at the then, it was at, at, and actually 2006, 2018, it's down to 11.6 million. I mean, the level of impact it had by being in the X Games, which was dominated by skateboarders that had a bit of control over what was put in there, were able to damage the reputation enough that the X Games thought it wasn't cool. Removing from the X Games made everyone else feel the same. And it was incredible what level of, of hits it took because of it. Well, I'll put it, I'll put it this way, and I know we're running out of time, but I don't think the X Games thought it wasn't cool. I think they saw it as something that they couldn't make a lot of money off of because of how grassroots rollerblading was. There was maybe five or six companies. They didn't make shoes. All the clothing was weird because it had nothing to do with the actual rollerblades itself. (laughs) It was all kind of an inside joke type of shit. And that I think that made them realize they're like, oh, we can't compete with marketing this as a a thing that's just for us because there's so many little companies. Which I mean, I think is a very good point. And that's true. This was very much that they were a niche society but largely because they were pushed to being a niche society. You know, they could have had that bigger access and it was very much just a mistake on the other side of large companies not bringing them into the fold that if they had just done that one move and had locked in with a major company, it would have had the opportunity to, to grow in the same way that other sports did. But no, instead it became very, as you said, grassroots. But the level of skill in this was really incredible. I mean, watching some of these tapes, there was a reason people were seeing the tapes and immediately going out and buying rollerblades or immediately, even if they were, were skaters in another form or immediately wanted to try this out. It had a huge impact, which was so cool how fast this was able to hit so many people. It hits me even harder because the fact of being taken out of the X Games is 2004, 2005. There's no YouTube. Where are you going to see this stuff? You, you have to see it on television or you see somebody doing it in person. Yeah. Those are the <laughs> only two ways that you're going to see this shit. God, that's so crazy to think like, of course you're right, but it just did not occur to me that like, yeah, like that you're right. You will not see that unless you actually are seeing a guy do it or you're going to watch ESPN like yeah there was no just looking it up it's an easy thing to forget I guess oh, yeah. the difference of the eras there out of sight out of mind baby that shit killed things back then I mean like it's blown up again right now and it's just because it's on your phone now with TikTok people you saw enough people doing it that once again you're able to be like oh yeah this did seem fun but it was kind of kicked so much far to the side that everyone just kind of dropped it as a hobby until whatever you want to say the democracy of the internet whatever kind of brought it back yeah and that was huge in fact it got into the x games because they got the first competition televised the year before and the response was so huge that yeah i mean that that was exactly it i think i think you nailed it that once it was gone there was nothing else to promote it and with this being the only level of access it was incredible how quickly it dried up when people just weren't seeing it anymore i mean skateboarding had tony hawk too and there was never a tony hawk of rollerblading yeah there, I mean, there, there kind of was, but no one ever knew who the fuck he was. <laughs> exactly, which is why, there, which is why he, there was never a Tony Hawk of roller skating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I think that year in the X Games, they were replaced by rally racing because of the popularity of the Fast and the Furious movies. Oh, okay. That I mean, I guess <laughs> makes sense, but I wonder about the damage the Fast and Furious movies have done too. That's what it did. Family destroyed rollerblading. <laughs> yeah, guys, Vin Diesel and his family. They've actually stayed on that trajectory. So now to win the competition you have to use your car to steal a bank vault and go to space with it. Yeah. 
just want him to go back to stealing DVD players. That's all I want to see him do. God, yeah. the second the trailer for Hobbs and Shaw came out, where they're like, Idris Elba is a cyborg super soldier poisoning the world. And I'm like, wasn't this a series about guys who stole DVD players? I want there to be a nod in the new one where the ending just Ben Diesel just rolls up the door on a U-Haul and goes, I got it. It's just all DVD players in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's how the last one should end. If they're saying the next one is going to be the final one, I feel like that entire mission should just be, we have to get these DVD players off this truck. Because they're going to be vintage in the future. Vin Diesel's like, I'm going to make a killing at the thrift store. Right. The movies. <laughs> <laughs> Although Vin Diesel has said he will be up for a musical Fast and the Furious. So I don't it. see this ending ever. Yeah. <laughs> Are you telling me that Vin Diesel is open to more money-making opportunities for Vin Diesel? He has been ever since he shot that first Street Sharks commercial. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Street Sharks? He was in the first commercial for Street Sharks. Oh my God. This is, this is, wow. Okay. That's a good mention too. This was so popular. We had Street Sharks, <laughs> which were just sharks that rollerbladed. It was a cartoon. I mean, no, they don't even have feet. How do you decide these are the two things we should combine? It's, you know what people love are sharks and rollerblades and sharks are in water though. Get the fuck out of the room. We're not dealing with that. <laughs> Literally, it's a thing where they were like, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are fun. What could we do? And they were like, oh, sharks. And they're like, okay, well, what sets them apart? Uh, these guys skate. <laughs> Incredible. Could not believe it existed. I, I'm going to go watch it all again now. Here's the thing, though. That show came out in 1994. That's still six years after the invention of the inline skate. Yeah. <laughs> this was before the X Games, 1994, before the first X Games. It was. In six years, they had a cartoon about skateboarding sharks. Obviously. They had their own kind of televised competition on ESPN. Brink would shortly come out. They completely scrapped their original plans for the original sequel to a Goofy movie and instead <laughs> made it a tie-in to the X Games mm -hmm. where Max and Goofy did inline skating. This is such like a crazy rise and fall and I can't think of anything to compare it to. No, <laughs> just because it was the speed at which this absolutely took over so much so that everyone was trying to get in on it. It didn't matter at all if what you were doing was related. It was if you put rollerblades in it, you were going to get more fans. So that's what they did. They threw rollerblades at it. So if that is everything we love about rollerbladings, we covered the history as well. So where it went wrong was basically skateboarders <laughs> kind of destroying it for everybody. So that should bring us to our next section of in their defense. How do you defend that? How do you defend the destruction of the success of rollerblading? I really feel like what comes up must come down the rise of anything that popular if i'm an outsider if you see that many people like if you're already doing a thing and you see everybody jumping on a thing that's similar like you know it's just going to be a fad and unfortunately i i love rollerblading it brought me so much joy as a kid and i still have a special place in my heart for it today but looking back on it i'm like oh this this does make sense of, of why it would fall and things like that yeah <laughs> it was expensive you got these heavy ass things chained to your feet all the time like i remember like people hate rollerblading so much i remember being a kid and you would go to like a convenience store on the corner and there would be a no rollerblade sign in there because they're like worried about a lawsuit or some shit right also i bet they scuffed the fuck out of floors oh, they had to like yeah. somebody had just mopped and they just come in and they just eat shit i can only imagine. yeah i can only imagine just some dipshit coming in for his morning coffee on his rollerblades i'll see you guys tomorrow just burns himself makes a million dollars i think that's a really good point too is that the speed 
seed of the rise here. I mean, it was talked about as a bubble. It was the same thing with, you know, tech companies at, at roughly the same time period where it grew so fast without such a stable base, it was going to burst at some point. And they basically just got the nudge of, of how it bursted from those that understandably they spent a long time building up their culture and they felt like others stepped in and took it from them. I, I get being upset about that. I think they handled it horribly, but I get it when you've been working for a couple decades to get the scene as legitimate and the sport that is six years old is now considered on par or maybe even more important than yours. I'd be pissed too. I just think they handled it wrong. It was also incredibly inclusive. Like there was so many different types of rollerblade. There, there was poser talk in rollerblading in general. Like if you didn't have a pair of aggressive skates and you were at the skate park trying stuff, you know, it's you stick out like a sore thumb. You know, you got your recreational rollerblades, your hockey rollerblades, quad skates, aggressive skates, speed skates. There was just too much shit. A skateboard is a piece of wood with four fucking wheels. Yeah. <laughs> Even the best skaters can do tricks on a crappy skateboard. Like if you don't have the right type of rollerblades, you can't do anything. And I think that was a big problem too. I think that's a, a really good point. Yeah, that that this was something where it was accessible to the masses in the lower form because if all you wanted to do was skate somewhere, yeah, they were a bit expensive, but you could do it pretty much anywhere that was flat and hard. That was pretty much all that was needed. But then to do it at the higher levels, yeah. Yeah, you, you needed the right equipment and that did begin to price people out. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go super weird with this one because you guys have said really good reasons <laughs> and uh, <laughs> took, all, took all the good ones. So I'm going to use a very labored metaphor here. Imagine the nineties. You're part of the production crew for the show Living Single, which is about <laughs> a group of black friends living in New York about their struggles. It's not a family sitcom. It's about your chosen family of your friends and your relationships. And that is, and you're riding that train out. But, then near the end of it all of a sudden a more accessible to the general public version fucking friends comes out of nowhere <laughs> and all of a sudden everyone's acting like you're not shitting anymore everyone's going wild for fucking friends all the bars are having friends night same premise same <laughs> premise just more accessible and dumbed down for the audience a little bit and everyone's eating that shit up yes that would piss me off and i would talk about friends and i would shit on it non-stop so <laughs> I'm just saying if the skateboarders are in living single and inline skating is friends, I would understand the animosity and I would also understand talking mad shit about it and wanting everyone to just shut the fuck up about friends because you got a better version of it over here that we actually worked really hard on before you stole all this stuff from us <laughs> and made it your own thing that's slightly worse. And that is my sweaty metaphor for inline skating and skateboarding. God, I love when when does in their defense in metaphor. Those are always fantastic. Yeah, that, that was such a good analogy. I'm convinced there's a dissertation on it for a college summer. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that about covers it, guys. That's the history of inline skating, what we loved about it, where it went wrong. John Torres, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. This was a blast. Absolutely. Uh, guys, please go check out the Brick a Brack podcast. It is so much fun. And if you're in Chicago or in 41 other cities, don't tell comedy, but especially check out the one here. And John, where can they find you on social media? You can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at, at J-O-N, two underscores, T-O-R-R-E-S. And go find all my stupid shit on there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't go do that. John, thank you for being here, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps out so much. And we'll also have our Patreon link down in the show notes if you can uh, subscribe there as well. That helps us keep the show going. We're going to be back next week. We'll hope you'll join us as well. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.